1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Stephen Buston. He's a professor of molecular medicine at Aglia Ruskin University. I'm going to talk about uh, PCR testing, uh, RT-PCR testing, and PCR testing. So, Steve, thanks for coming. Tell me about how you got involved in studying, uh, you know, polymerase chain reaction and reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction tests.
2: You may know that uh, the PCR was first published in 1985. Um, We heard about it in 1986, and we've been working with it ever since. So uh, we we published our first paper involving PCR in um, 1995. So it's been a long, long time. Um, Initially, uh, our work was involved with looking at um, markers in colorectal cancer, RNA markers, Uh, to predict um, who might suffer treatment failure following surgery. So we were using reverse transcription and PCR to look for human mRNAs to see if we could uh, find a a set of of cancer-specific markers or metastasis-specific markers that would predict uh, treatment failure. And I spent a lot of time um, on that. And in 1998, we got the first um, real-time instrument in, in the UK, academic instrument in the UK, And and that, of course, changed the way we do PCR because we were able to go from having to run um, our samples on a gel after the the PCR uh, reaction to be able to detect um, our uh, amplification products in real time. So it made it a lot easier and also um, prevented contamination and really made uh, diagnostics possible. And between one thing and another, um, I carried on with real-time PCR and uh, had the first real-time PCR meeting any, anywhere in the world in, uh, in London in, in um, 2003 and was approached by lawyers uh, involved in litigation um, with the measles, mumps and rubella uh, autism vaccine trial. And that then uh, awoke my interest in, in um, the power of molecular technology what
1: do you mean you approached by lawyers? For what, what purpose? The, uh,
2: the liti- there was a litigation in the High Court here in London. Parents uh, of children led by a, a lawyer and uh, a doctor called Andrew Wakefield um, were claiming that there was a link between MMR and um, autism. Mm. And uh, as part of the evidence, uh, there had been experiments that purported to show the presence of measles virus in the gut of autistic children. And measles virus, of course, is an RNA virus. So RT-PCR had been used for that. And because I had run the meeting in London and had published several articles on RT-PCR, pointing out the problems associated with it, um, I was approached by by the lawyers to see if I would look at the data and see whether I thought they were um, valid or not. So what became clear to me at that stage was that rather than sitting in the lab and doing experiments no one's interested in, um, it would be useful to perhaps uh, try and make people aware of the fact that certain techniques uh, need to be improved and the way we deal with um, molecular technology, um, rather than working for the latest thing and moving on from one technology to another, we should do what we do right and, and get things right before we move on. And so I've been publishing and working um, with various colleagues around the world ever since. To try and improve the quality of of molecular testing uh, not just for uh, obviously diagnostics but um, research as well. So and, with, uh,
1: with, with SARS-CoV-2 who first suggested using uh, PCR testing and you know what are your, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well that, the, the first RT-PCR test uh, for molecular testing was published in 1989 and uh, we published ours in 1995 so there's a long history um, of, of successful use of PCR and RT-PCR in molecular diagnostics. So since uh, SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA-based virus, it is the obvious technology to use to detect it because there's no technology that is as sensitive as PCR and there's no technology that is as flexible as PCR and there's also no technology that's as fast as PCR. So as long as it's done properly, Um, any molecular test for any target uh, will be accurate and valid and reliable. So once the sequence for uh, the virus had been published in January 2020, it was an obvious thing to do to uh, design assays and use those for for the detection of the virus.
1: Okay, so when PCR tests started for SARS-CoV-2, did anyone know the number of cycle thresholds or how they were being run or what the parameters were or what what was your...
2: The problem with, with, with the whole method is that it involves the, the detection rather than the quantification of your target. So what PCR and QPCR are very good at is detecting uh, very low levels of target, very high levels of target, a uh, huge dynamic range, and giving you a yes or no answer. That's the, it's very good at that. It is also good at telling you there's more of the sample or more of the target or less of the target there. And is also good at telling you there's virtually nothing there. What it can't tell you is whether that, what you're detecting is viable. And without a clinical context, it can't tell you what it actually means in terms of, is the amount of virus you're detecting, um, for example, infectious. It can't tell you that. So what people, uh, the mistake people have been making has been to extrapolate and to try and use cutoff values for CQs that um, say CQ of 35 means that there's one or two targets. Of course, it means that, but it doesn't mean that it's infectious or not infectious. We just don't know what that means, because in order to know what it means clinically, you have to have some kind of a standard. You have to have a reference. You have to have something that tells you what the actual CQ means, and we don't have any of that. And um, I think that is one of the failings of our national um, uh, metrology and uh, uh, institutes and, and reference and standards institutes that to, even today we don't have references for proper reference standards for 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 SARS-CoV-2. The technology itself is not the problem. It's the interpretation of this technology.
1: So how does the, uh, how does the test work? You know, for people that don't know, how does uh, PCR and RT PCR work?
2: Okay. Uh, let's, let's take example of, of SARS since it's, it's the one we we're talking about. Um, it is an RNA virus uh, and PCR, the TAC polymerase is extremely inefficient at amplifying, um, DNA, uh, RNA. So the first thing you have to do is once you've extracted the RNA, um, you have to convert the RNA into DNA. And there's two ways of doing that. You can do that in a one so one-step reaction where you combine your reverse transcriptase and your Taq polymerase, and do the whole thing. You start off with an RT reaction, then you put you take the same tube and and do the PCR reaction. Um, and that's the favoured technology for diagnostic applications. It's just simpler. In research applications, we, for research applications, we usually uh, do a two-step reactions. So we do a separate RT. And then we can use that actually to do other things as well, where we might do several PCR reactions on that same RNA preparation. So you do a certain reverse inscription time, let's say five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. And then um, the PCR comes in and does X number of cycles. And in real time, you then detect um, a a signal. It's it's a fluorescence-based detection system. So uh, the more target you have, the earlier you detect the uh, fluorescence. Uh, so if you have lots of target, you might detect it after cycle 10. If there's intermediate number numbers, target it might be cycle 15 to 20. And if there's very little, it will be 32, 34. It all depends on the efficiency of, of your test that you're using, because obviously the more efficient your test, the more the earlier your, your, your target will come up. So there's, there's a number of barriers right. that we have to take into consideration. But, but that's the basic principle of the test.
1: Before we continue... the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So, all right. So how does the test again? How does the test work? Very basically what it, how does it, uh, once the RNA is turned into DNA, how does it amplify it? And does it, you know, each time it goes through a cycle, is it doubling the amounts or what's happening?
2: Yeah, in in principle it should. What, what you have is you have two two um, d- short DNA um, sequences which are called primers, oligonucleotides, and they're between 15 and 22 nucleotides long, and they bind to opposite sides or, or to opposite opposite strands. And what happens is you heat the DNA, which opens it up. Your primers bind to the two strands of the DNA. Uh, you cool it down, and the polymerase comes detects these um, two primers down to the DNA and extends the, the uh, DNA from the, it synthesizes fresh DNA. And, and, but you repeat that for 20 cycles. And in theory, if you have hundred percent efficiency, you get doubling after, uh, every cycle. Okay. So, uh, these tests, when they were used
1: early on in SARS-CoV-2, what were the mm-hmm. parameters and how were they set? Did anyone even know what they were?
2: Oh, yes, of course, because <laughs> detecting SARS is no different than detecting anything else. Um, so the first thing you have to do is you have to design the assay. So um, the sequence, uh, SARS-CoV-2 sequence, was published uh, by, by by Chinese scientists uh, online uh, at the middle or uh, towards the middle of January, and by the end of January, the first assays had been designed. Now assay design is reasonably straightforward if you know what you're doing. As long as you have a sequence, you can design a, a test, and that's what was done. Uh, and the Chinese themselves designed a number of tests. Um, a, a group in Germany designed the test, a group in France, so there were several tests available early on, and of course since then, um, there are numerous companies now all producing their own tests in fact, we ourselves published an assay um, uh, last year which detects SARS-CoV-2, so there's now, now there's numerous a- a- assays available targeting uh, various parts of the viral genome
1: Okay, but, you know, again, where the parameters known, was the cycle threshold known you know, I, oh. I've spoken to people that have had testing in and- I mean, no one, none of them even knew to ask, but did anyone know about, again, the cycle thresholds or any other details?
2: Well, about I'm not sure what you mean by you know, the cycle threshold. What happens is um, we know yeah. if you have a single copy, all things being equal and the assay being efficient, you will detect that at the roundabout cycle threshold 35. If the assay is not 100% effective or efficient, it might be a little bit later. And so we know that so what we can then say is if we have standards they're, they're not certified standards but standard uh, standards that, that we have um calculated in terms of we know roughly what the copy numbers of these targets are because we have synthesized them for example then we can say there's five copies 100 copies or 5,000 copies there what we can't say is whether these this is sufficient to cause an infection that's the one thing you cannot tell so that's where you need to clinical context and that's where you need an additional the clinical information: Is there a cough? Is there a temperature? Um, is the person feeling bad? It, it, that, that has to be the whole. There's several different um, parameters that have to come together. You can't just rely on the test by itself.
1: Yeah, I, I understand. I just, you know, when I ran some calculations in Excel, if I had, let's say, one viral particle, and I yes. doubled it 30 times, I would get 536 million. Mm-hmm. If I doubled it 45 times, I would get 17 trillion, which is like yes. 10,000 times more.
2: Yes. At the later uh, cycles, the you don't get duplication anymore because um, there's inhibition of the, the PCR becomes inhibited by by the target. So,
1: so I just wonder what the the target levels were, how many um, you know what would be the result at you know again 35 cycles or 45 cycles however they ran it, what how many particles were they looking for that would let them know okay at, at the beginning, if uh, you've got you know uh, 44 trillion then at the beginning there was. Uh, You know, at least 100 of them, let's say, and that's enough to be infectious.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: Yeah, we we just don't know that. I don't think we still don't know what the infectious dose of SARS-CoV-2 is. All we can say is that it's there. Uh, What we can't say is whether it's live virus that's there. It is likely that it's it's live virus because it's an RNA virus and RNA isn't the most stable of, of molecules. Uh, On the other hand, the tests we use, use very short amplification products. So it is possible that you can get, uh, you can detect um, just uh, some uh, uh, RNA debris that's still floating around. Um, So it's something that that has not really been clarified yet. All you can say is that if you get a positive result and your controls are all negative, that you can rely on the fact that there is a target there. Now, if in addition to detecting a, a, a PCR, a positive PCR result, the person also exhibits signs of uh, being infected, then you know it, it is SARS-CoV-2 or likely to be SARS-CoV-2. But of course, a lot of people are asymptomatic. So it, it is not a straightforward correlation between the presence uh, or absence of a, a positive result and the presence or absence of, of, of an infection.
1: Yeah, and with the testing, I guess, the, you know, were, as long as the, uh, the test came out positive, uh, you were sick is what the, uh, the media seemed to say.
2: The po- test came out positive and you were sick.
1: No, yeah, yeah, I mean, the test came out positive. It seemed like yeah. the media is like, okay, you're a case. You're infected. You know, we have to do all these things.
2: Yeah, I think the relationship isn't quite as, as straightforward as that. But I think what you can say is that there is virus or that there is viral RNA there. That's what you can say. If you use an antigen-based test, then you can say that there's also viral protein there, in which case you're very likely to have been or be infected. Um, if you have positive antibodies from an antibody test, then you know you've been infected. So there, there's, there, it's not just a single test that you would want to use. I think for screening, initially in screening, it's very useful, but um, you then have to follow it up. And a single test is never what you, you want. More than one test, uh, if, if, it is, if it is positive or low positive. Um, or, or so based another.
1: on what you see, do you think the testing was done in the right manner?
2: Well, I think you have to consider that it was all uh, rushed. It was all uh, done extremely. We were learning all the time. So I think some some countries have, dealt with it a lot better than others. For example, in the UK, we dealt with it very, very badly. Um, and we, we st- our, our testing is still a shambles. Um, in, in Germany or Taiwan, uh, in Korea, they dealt, dealt with it extremely well. So it, it is not a question of the test, not being any good; It is a question of the people, the public health uh, um, laboratories and the people in charge of policies that, that failed uh, a lot of the time, particularly, you know, in the, as I say, in the UK uh, and uh, probably to, to some degree in the United States as well.
1: So what would be the proper protocol for the testing, according to what you know?
2: Well, if you do a test now, um, in my opinion, you should be using saliva rather than nasopharyngeal swabs, because um, saliva is, is a lot easier to get hold of. It's a lot less traumatic for the person giving the sample. And you're more likely to actually get a a, a sample that contains virus than if you have to stick a, a swab up someone's or your own nose and don't know quite what you're doing. A, a PCR test is not just the PCR assay itself, it's the whole workflow starting with sample collection through transporting it to extract the RNA to um, uh, do the PCR and then analyzing it. So the whole thing has to come together. So you, you take, for example, what we are working on is a, is a five-minute extraction procedure. We spit into a tube, uh, and after five minutes, you end up with 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 RNA. In fact, with cDNA. So, um, what you want to the, the most important thing to avoid is well, two things to avoid. Firstly, that you don't get uh, a positive sample if there is virus there, and secondly, that you don't contaminate your sample with 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 virus from another sample, which can happen if you're doing lots of of, of samples at the same time. So that that's crucial. Uh, so that the the material you put into your test has to be bona fide, either positive or negative, not because something has happened to it. Um, so that, that's the first thing. The second thing is you have to use a, a test, a good test. And in and, and my opinion, you used to use at least three, and that's what our test does, at least three viral genes you have to target. Uh, and it should not be the spike protein you're targeting, um, which initially was targeted by some assays, because the spike protein is obviously something that, that changes quite a lot. Um, having said all that, um, it is an RNA virus, and although it has a repair mechanism, um, you do get some mutations. As we know, we're getting variants. So um, if you have three, three assays of, yeah, three different uh, genes, if you target three different genes of, uh, on the viral genome, then you are likely to detect um, the virus, even if one of, them becomes mutate, one of the sites becomes mutated. Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing. And you have to make sure that your primers and, uh, and probes are well designed, uh, that they are specific, um, and that the uh, assay is uh, more or less 100% effect, uh, efficient. Um, you have to be sh- sure that your your RT and your uh, 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 Taq polymerase are working well, that your instruments working well. As uh, so you have to have positive and negative controls, you have to have minus RT controls. So th- there's a lot of things that, that come to, that have to come together that may have not been done initially because of the, all the panic, but certainly uh, in the better-run public health laboratories in the world, and that's what happens now.
1: Oh, so the testing has been modified and changed now, and it's being done the right way, in your opinion?
2: Well, in some instances, it has. I, I think there's still a lot of problems with how the tests are being carried out, not just PCR tests, but, you know, uh, tests in general for, not, and again, not just for SARS-CoV-2, but for other, for other uh, pathogens as well. I, I think the main issue with SARS has been that it has happened so rapidly, and it's been overwhelming, a lot of the laboratories. Uh, and so a lot of the staff initially were not trained, didn't know, know what they're doing. So there so were a number of reasons why um, we had problems. I think that the problems now are uh, more to do with uh, the fact that uh, perhaps, you know, the, the problems now have more to do with the fact that we're not quite sure how to interpret all of the results that we're getting. So if you have a CQ of 15, then you have a lot of virus there and that is probably infectious. But if you have a CQ of 25, well, then we just don't know what it means. And th- that's the problem we have now.
1: So, what, are the tests still being done again with nasal swabs? Are they still being run to what CQ? I mean,
2: yeah, that, have that's, things
1: changed and where?
2: Yeah, that's. It, I think it depends on who's running the tests. Um, in in some places, it's reported as present or absent. In other places, it's reported as high, medium, low. Uh, again, other places do report a CQ. Uh, it is quite variable, but there's no standard uh, as far as I know at least. There's no standard way of reporting, even within, say, the UK. So I would expect um, in other countries to be similar that there's no standard um, way of doing these things.
1: So how can but, the data be, uh, you know, be seen at the, in the right way if the standards all over the place? Like yeah, how would it, you? How would you look at a given country's data and parse out what actually happened?
2: Well, that's exactly the problem that, that you don't know. Uh, that uh, in, in The incidence in, in one country may be quite different to... to inc- or it might be the same to the incident in another country, but it could be quite different because the way the testing is interpreted or, or carried out is different. So that clearly is a problem, yes. But um, what you can do, is, I guess, you, or what you do is you, you look at hospitalizations, you look at severe cases, and so you know whether the, the, uh, the virus is rampant or not.
1: So do you see that testing is going the right way, or not yet,
2: still, or what? As I say, the test itself is not really the problem; it is the interpretation. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I think I, th- there is a lot of effort going into getting it right. Um, unfortunately, there's also a lot of misinformation. You know, this article that you pointed out to me. Um, th- there's a lot of of politics involved. There's a lot of 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 money involved. Um, you have a lot of lawyers chasing this. Uh, so I, I think that there are problems and, and people are deliberately uh, bad-mouthing RT, PCR, PCR itself when, yeah, it's, it's not justified really. Certainly not anymore.
1: Well, it's not justified because the testing is being done right or it's not justified because what reason?
2: No, because the testing, certainly it has improved immensely. Um, the, How has it improved, by the way? Because the we started off with tests that, for example, there was a mistake in one of the uh, primers that was corrected. Um, the initial tests were, were, were uh, one or two targets only. Um, one of the tests actually did look into the spike, uh, targeted the spike protein, which then became mutated and so it didn't work anymore. Um, so uh, the quality of the tests, the assays, the reagents has certainly improved, um, and I suppose the Public health laboratories carrying out the tests, at least in the UK, um, now are far more expert at carrying out testing. The the initial lack of experience of a lot of the staff now has been replaced with people having done thousands or hundreds of thousands of tests. And so I guess it it was a learning curve that we are now at a stage where we can rely on on, on most testing, I think, uh, in terms of having a positive or negative result. As long as the controls are included, which they usually are now as well. Again, uh, a lot of the tests that you commercial tests have internal controls, so that you know that there is RNA there in the first place, because the negative result, of course, could be due to the fact that there was no RNA there in the first place. So that's why you have to have internal controls. So all these have been added over over the last or the last yeah over the last year. So I think probably since August September last year. Um, we have certainly Mark 2, Mark 3 version of tests that are much better than they used to be.
1: So if, if someone had a test early on, how do they know it's it's valid? It doesn't matter? You know, if someone had a test a year ago and if they weren't doing things the right way or, you know, n- not to this depth, uh, that what do they do?
2: Yeah, well, if if, if they were positive, then... Uh, were the, were the uh,
1: numbers revised, for instance, you know, of people that were, that tested positive after they figured out how to do it right? Or were the numbers kept as they as they were?
2: Well, uh, I don't think they have been revised, but bear in mind that a year ago, uh, not as many tests were carried out. In the UK, testing was ramped up um, only uh, uh, in you know, May, June time. So uh, people that uh, would, have, would have caught the virus in, in February, March, April time, most people would not have been tested. Uh, and that's why the incidence in the, in the first wave was much lower in most, most countries than in the second or third waves because not the same number of people were tested. So um, I, I don't think figures have been revised, no. But uh, I think, as I say, the...
1: Um, you, do you the, think they should be or just keep them as
2: they were? I haven't even I haven't considered that. Uh, oh, okay. It does it really matter. Um, I don't know. Uh, we, we know that there have been uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths in, in the United States. There have been 130,000 in the UK. There's 4,500 people dying in India every day. So we know that is a huge problem. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's what matters
1: okay, so uh the testing now you you're saying uh, they've learned enough where it's it's pretty robust and now it should be viewed as accurate
2: in, in principle, yes, obviously you can't account for individual mistakes and individual labs not carrying out the tests properly, which can of course sure. happen
1: okay so what uh, what's next in your investigation of the testing is it i mean are you done now and you're moving on to other things or are there still aspects of the testing that need to be addressed like yeah, you mentioned the- is there a uh now, is there a known quantity of viral particles that you would have, let's say, started with to see if you're actually infected or sick, or if you had enough viral load?
2: Yeah, that's that's up to the uh, national, you know, reference standard agencies um, to to come up with standards for that. That's nothing. Something that interests me. I'm more interested in getting the tests better, to work better. So, what we're working on now is um, eventually we want to do the PCR test in thirty seconds. Um, so we want to use it, it's called extreme PCR. And at the moment we have it down to two minutes. We can do a two-minute PCR test. Um, and all that involves really is doing very, very fast RTs and very fast cycling between different um, between, uh, different temperatures by adjusting the concentrations of the primer, the buffer, and the enzymes. So uh, the idea will be then to eventually have a, a, a point of care device that allows you to do essentially instant, well, virtually instant testing within five minutes. So you can go into you know, into cinemas, into cruise liners, at the airport, at hospitals, old people's homes, whatever, and do very quickly uh, your PCR tests while people are waiting. But that's what's required, I think, to to get this to to get the testing to a position where you, you can easily test as many people where you have to test them uh, as as possible. Because the, the the problem is going to be if um, we if variants develop that can escape the vaccine. So you have to very quickly and be able to do surge testing and identify uh, hotspots, identify the people. So you have to go in there and get the results very, very quickly. And so the faster you can do the PCR, the better. And no other technique can do it as fast as PCR.
1: Okay, so you see a future where every place you go, they can test you constantly to go anywhere?
2: Well, but I would see it is that you have a handheld device that costs a hundred pounds or hundred dollars. And you have little cassettes that contain the test and it could be a flu test. It can be a tuberculosis test, whatever test. And if it's in this case, SARS-CoV-2, yes, you just uh, take, you might even, any household might have one of these and you just, you take the cassettes and you get it at the chemist for free, probably, or you pay five pounds or ten pounds or whatever for it or dollars for it. And, uh, you test, you test yourself. And within a couple of minutes, you have the results. I think that's how I would see this. Uh, you could, of course, have an in little instrument in an, in, in a, in a care home. Where you go around, spit into a tube, and um, the, the the people in that care home or the staff or the visitors get an answer to whether they are infected with whatever, in this case SARS could be flu, of course as well within five minutes. I think that's what's going to happen eventually
1: well how well does a uh, positive result on the PCR test now correlate with actual sickness?
2: yeah well that is of course an issue not just for SARS could be too for any for any disease, really. I think these experiments are going on we have a they we have approved in the UK a challenge test where healthy people are being infected with different doses of the virus to see which dose causes infection. So it's called a challenge trial. Um, so that's the kind of trial that can tell you what kind of, of viral load you need to become infected. Of course, this is going to differ between individuals because our immune systems are different at different ages. We will be more or less susceptible. And there'll be other uh, comorbidities that would affect the um, ability of the virus to infect us. So yeah, it's clearly a subject that needs to be investigated and uh, requires further further thought. It's something we can't answer yet.
1: So there's no, no, there's no knowledge still of whether if you test positive, that means you're sick or going to get sick or going to get people sick, but yet the testing continues.
2: Well, if, if you test positive, you probably have the virus. Now you might not get sick, but you could pass it on to somebody who's going to get sick. That is the problem, you see, because uh, it's, it's always about uh, protecting others, not just yourself. So uh, that that is why it's so important to get vaccinated, for example, and that's why it's important that we test people. Because uh, yeah, you and I, we are immune, we don't get it, but you know, our, our old granny will get it and die, and that's what we want to prevent.
1: So, with the, I mean, you're, it seems like you're saying there's a need for a lot more testing, but if the vaccines are working, then wouldn't that reduce the need for testing?
2: The vaccines are not 100% effective. Firstly. Secondly, we are getting variants. We don't know yet how how they will pan out. Um, And so I think there will be a continued need for testing, yes. Um, But how much and and where, I don't know. Clearly, um, as you can see, what's happening in India, what's happening in Southeast Asia, and will be happening in Africa and South America. The virus is is rampant around the world. And yeah, as long as there is virus, it will transmit. And as long as it transmits, it can change. And so as long as it, change, as long as it changes, it, will cause it, it could cause a problem for us. So we need to test. We need to be able to test.
1: Well, very good. Uh, Steve, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go?
2: Online. Um, if, you, if you look up my name, I, look up, I have lots of papers in PubMed. There's lots of papers and articles for free on, online. There's various on YouTube. There are, and there's, yeah, there's, there's lots of places where they can go. Just look, look, look up my name and you know, there'll be lots of information about me.
1: Okay, very good. Well, Stephen, thank you for coming on the podcast.
2: It's a pleasure.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else?